Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival, and returning in February, the Stranger Than Fiction screening series at New York's IFC Center. I'm recording from a condo in Park City, Utah at the Sundance Film Festival. I've been coming here for almost 20 years, and I know to expect highs and lows. There was a steady snowfall for several days that made the week hard to navigate. With a lack of theaters in this ski town, movies are shown in makeshift venues like a racquetball club and a synagogue spread miles apart. After a few days of riding crowded shuttle buses, it stops being cute. By mid-fest, people start catching colds. Josh Braun from our last episode wound up in the emergency room this year. But he quickly got back on his feet and it didn't slow down his deal-making. This year's marketplace for selling documentaries may be at an all-time high. Netflix broke out their checkbook and bought several docs, including Chasing Coral about environmental threats to the ocean, Nobody Speak about the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker, and Icarus about Russia's Olympic doping. CNN and The Orchard teamed up to buy Trophy about big game hunting, and Amazon picked up a four-hour film about the Grateful Dead. Some of those sales were reported in the range of two to five million dollars, well above the typical six figures for a documentary. For theatrical distributors, those prices would be hard to recoup at the domestic box office, but subscription companies like Netflix and Amazon have different metrics for success. Whether this market peak is a bubble or a rising trend remains to be seen. My biggest thrills at the festival are the people you can meet here. Over the past week, I had the chance to interview political journalist John Heilman behind the Showtime film Trumped. Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and he does pretty much what he wants most of the time. But those players around the edges at crucial moments in crucial ways, I think matter to a pretty large degree. The Hong Kong activist Joshua Wan, who's in the film Joshua, Teenager versus Superpower. Uh, the press freedom is continually eroded by China. Most of the newspaper in Hong Kong is already sent in the side of Beijing, so it's necessary to get the international media to support us. And the Japanese filmmaker Kyoko Miyake, who made Tokyo Idols, that I mentioned in the last episode. My generation is a little bit tired of the word feminism, so it, I was quite hesitant to call myself a feminist, for many years because it felt like all the battles have been won. We recorded all those conversations for future episodes of Pure Nonfiction. Today's guest was an unexpected surprise. On the night of Donald Trump's inauguration, I was at a Sundance party and was thrilled to spot a short South Asian man with a big smile, Mohammed Nasheed. He was the main subject of the film The Island President, and I hosted him six years ago for the film's world premiere in Toronto, where it won the audience prize. Now at Sundance, I heard him making polite conversation with a stranger who asked who he was. Well, how do I explain this, he said with a bit of embarrassment. I used to be the president of the Maldives. Nasheed's history isn't easy to summarize. The Maldives is a collection of islands in the Indian Ocean with a population under 400,000. When Nasheed was growing up, his country had long stretches of repressive rulers. He became a nonviolent activist and was jailed several times. Then came a change of political fortune. In 2008, at age 41, he was elected president and made climate change his top priority. He describes why in the island president. If we can't stop 
sea is rising. Global warming will destroy the mountains. As a president, it is very clear to me that the most important fight is the fight for our survival. Once to illustrate the threat to his country, President Nasheed held a cabinet meeting underwater with scuba gear. It was covered by media around the world. The island president follows his global diplomacy as he tries to rally much larger countries to reduce carbon emissions. The film culminates at the 2009 Copenhagen summit, where leaders sought to reach an environmental agreement. In Copenhagen, Nasheed advocated to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere to below 350 parts per million. Unfortunately, today, it remains at a much higher level. In this scene, we watch Nasheed during tense negotiations with his own staff on whether to walk out in Copenhagen or to accept a compromise. Mr. President, you, you, you don't want, you've said, and you mean this, I presume, that you don't want to sign a national suicide note. Uh, we have to consider what that actually means. I mean, what the numbers need to be in order not to sign away the future of your country. Let me ask you, if we walk out, do we get it? No. Then I think the, the strong public statements we've made in the past, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, which are you know, uh, you know, the positions that we seek for our survival, that should remain as it is. Yeah, but we need a deal in Copenhagen. We need, uh, we need to come out with a deal. And I feel that Maldives can be instrumental in getting a deal. You should not lower the, the, the ambitions on, 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 on one and a half degrees. So and because we, that is what, we, the, that's what we have now, been saying. Okay, we hold on to this uh, one and a half degrees and 350. And, and what? If we get, come out from here without some form of an understanding, um, I fear that this whole thing can be dragged on and on and on for a very long time without any understanding. The year after I met Nasheed in Toronto, he was forced out of office under threat of violence by political opponents. He spent another year in jail while human rights lawyers, including Amal Clooney, campaigned for his release. Last year, he was finally allowed a medical leave for surgery in England, where he was granted asylum and now lives in exile. Here he was at Sundance to speak on a climate panel with Al Gore. The filmmakers behind Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, John Shank and Bonnie Cohen, also made The Island President. The next morning, while millions were protesting Donald Trump around the world, Nasheed and I met for a wide-ranging conversation about his career. So I want to start by asking a little bit about your background. You started out as an activist at the time Maldives was under a dictatorship. What were the conditions in the country that made you want to be more active? I finished university um, in 1989. Um, I, did, I went to school and university in England. And after that, I went back to the Maldives. Um, I was working as a um, government servant, but also part-time we started writing a magazine, bringing out a very small magazine. Uh, we were mainly reporting on human rights and corruption. Um, human rights uh, um, torture in jail was rampant in the Maldives at this time. 
and we were really in another century. Um, there was a lot of abuse going on. And because I come from a background, from a family of many people who have been incarcerated and who have been tortured. My father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my uncle died in jail. Um, so this was natural and we started reporting on that. At that time, President Gayoum has been in power for just over 20 years. Um, and, and dissent in any form was suppressed. So President Gayoum and his government went along and deregistered our magazine and arrested the whole editorial. Uh, I remember that night more than 270 people were arrested. And uh, I was in solitary confinement for 18 months. Um, I was tortured twice and they wanted a confession out of me. They wanted me to uh, uh, capitulate to the state. Now, the, their idea of capitulation is giving everything to the state. Basically, they would interrogate me on my uh, first girlfriend, on anything, all my life, everything. Um, and I was not prepared to do that. I, I didn't. And therefore, this went on and on and on and on. But because of a lot of work through Amnesty International um, and others, Amnesty International had, had by this time declared my, me um, as a prisoner of conscience. And because of that, uh, and, and much pressure from a lot of people, uh, President Gayoum released me. You've always pursued a, uh, a, a nonviolent uh, resistance. And, uh, and I wonder what it is about that tactic that appeals to you? Well, you know, uh, I cannot see how you can address violence through violence. I cannot see how you can uh, create um, understanding uh, through misunderstanding. Um, and I've always felt that um, if you are prepared to stand up for these dictators, they're afraid, they're scared. And even if one person stands in front of them and don't blink, I think they crumble. Uh, 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 and I would still argue, many would argue, that it's not possible for now for the Maldives to come back on a more democratic track uh, without some form of serious conflict. But I would still argue that that would be wrong, uh, and we must stick to our principles of nonviolence. So... You eventually got elected president, uh, despite this unlikely uh, background. And as president of Maldives, you, um, you you made a primary mission addressing climate change. Why was that so important to you? Well, you know, we came into government uh, uh, advocating human rights um, um, and, and human rights and human rights. And we wanted to clean the country and grant basic rights to our people. But when I came into government, I soon started realizing that everything led to climate change. You couldn't govern the Maldives without being mindful about what was happening to the environment. Uh, more than 60, 70% of our expenditure was going on adaptation issues, 
on dealing with climate change issues. So it's really not possible for anyone um, to govern, I would argue anyone to govern any country without being mindful about what's happening to the planet. Uh, um, so then we had to address it. Uh, and we wanted to impress upon the world the gravity of the issue. And as we were preparing ourselves for COP19 in Copenhagen, uh, um, we wanted to uh, let the world know um, the challenges that the Maldives were facing. So we had an underwater cabinet meeting to highlight the issue. Um, some would, uh, some might say that this was the, all this is publicity stunts, mm -hmm. but of course uh, um, you have to get the message across, and and you are always trying to look at and trying to find um, alternative ways of how it can be done. So we did that, and and we were able to galvanize um, um, the Maori public as well as a lot of I believe a lot of other people also. Uh, um, to the gravity of the issue. And and I would think, and I would assume, and I do assume, that um, the Paris Agreement was born from the Copenhagen COP19 ideas. And uh, I'm happy that we did it. When you were at Copenhagen and when you were participating and when you continue to participate in movements and conversations and, and meetings to, to make positive change around this, uh, this issue. What are the barriers that you face? Well, we've, we've always um, advocated climate change as an um, environment issue and as a human rights issue. I think we should also talk about it as an economic issue. My view is that the new technology available it's far more efficient. Um, the fossil fuel technology um, is obsolete. It's Victorian. It's dirty and tidy, cumbersome, and unsustainable. Uh, uh, but we've we've always pitched this as an environment and an ethical issue. Um, I think that's that's a barrier. Um, we must start talking about it as an economic issue. I find the new technology financially viable, uh, um, um, and I think countries can develop um, with a low-carbon development strategy far more efficiently than the fossil fuel uh, models that we have. The received wisdom of the economics that we, we now have assumes the environment air to be a free good. I mean, you couldn't get more wrong. Um, and therefore, if you build economic models based on that, you, you are bound to go wrong. Uh, I think we need to come out with the new economics. Um, and I believe that the technology is there. Um, it's for us to put it together and come out as a, a manifesto of government, uh, uh, governing with uh, sustainable methods and I would try and do that more than arguing climate change as an environment issue. Hmm. 
So in 2011, the film The Island President came out. We showed at the Toronto Film Festival, started showing at other film festivals and uh, gaining some recognition. Uh, at the same time, in the Maldives, you were uh, facing a lot of uh, political turmoil that led to you having to resign uh, in 2012. I'm wondering, when, when the film was out, did that have any positive or negative effect on the, the political fights that you were waging at home? There was no popular discontent against our government. What we had done was not address the past. Um, we want, I wanted to go forward. I, wouldn't, I didn't want to prosecute the former president. Uh, we've had a history of um, whenever, the new, whenever there is a new government, which usually comes through a coup, they would arrest the whole of the previous government. We wanted to break that circle. Um, so we did not prosecute the previous government. And they came back and toppled us. So uh, it's, it's possible to uh, uh, topple a dictator. It's possible. But it is very difficult to uproot a dictatorship. So the film helped us. Uh, the film helped us a lot. Uh, Maldives issues were discussed in, uh, internationally. Uh, and the people of the Maldives wanted to save their country, um, especially water issues, erosion, coastal erosion. So um, uh, we wanted all these embankments, revetments, water breakers, uh, and, and water systems, sewerage systems, and so on. Uh, uh, and and these, these were very often related to climate change issues. So they were aware of that, and, and they liked the fact that this is being broadcasted throughout the world. It helped us. I wonder when you look back on that uh, time, you know, if you second guess any of your own uh, tactics, uh, you know, uh, earlier you were speaking about trying to not meet force with force, but is you know, the, the fact that you were removed from office, what, is, what does that speak to that tactic? Uh, you know, means don't justify the ends. Uh, um, if you want to, believing that the end is paradise, believing that your goal is so beautiful and, and um, arguably uh, uh, proper and correct, you, you cannot then use whatever means available to, to get at that goal. I don't think you would ever reach that if you start using the wrong means. So your question is, if I go, when we, if we get back to government again, and I think we will, uh, would we use more force? Would we go for a witch hunt? Would we run after the uh, president now? I don't think so. I don't think you should be doing that again. And, and a lot of people would criticize me for saying this uh, and for arguing for this. Uh, but I don't think that uh, you can build a democratic society uh, based on a witch hunt or vendetta or revenge. Um, um, and I don't think that the courtroom necessarily is the best place for justice. Uh, the democratic process would give you justice. What we, are, what we are fighting for is for the future, for the next generation, for our children. If we go and run after the past and, and try to prosecute a lot of people and harm a lot of families uh, in the process, I don't think we would be able to get that bright future that we envisage, that we hope for. Hmm. 
um, a year ago, you got out of jail and another stint in jail. When I read profiles of you, that comes across in an article as a sentence that you spent a year in jail. Uh, for you know, those of us who have not had that experience, it's hard to imagine what that means. And, and I wonder if you can evoke what that means. Well, I've spent a lot of time in jail, not just the last one year. Um, in fact, I think I've, I've spent half of my adult life in jail. It's hard. It's difficult. Um, um, uh, and it's difficult to stay there. Loneliness, the pain, and being removed from everything else, uh, being regimented. It's not easy at all. Uh, but the pain that you feel, and if you can imagine that pain to be your tragedy, because all tragedies ultimately are romances, um, I think um, you can somehow survive it. Uh, I survive it by saying that, uh, you know, this is my romance. This is my tragedy. Uh, I, I've always tried to define it in words or, or, or try to understand it in words on why, uh, how I survive long periods of incarceration. Um, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't advise anyone to do that. But uh, um, then again, after having you're said, not advocating for people to romanticize incarceration. Uh, I did a book called Redundancy of Courage, uh, Timothy Moore, I think, um, where you know uh, it's not really courage. Courage is redundant. Um, it's you. 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 You're, you're trying to do one day in jail, uh, and then oh, one hour. And then after you've done one hour, you kind of think, okay, I've done one hour, let's do another one. So you do a day and then let's say, okay, let's do another day. And then you do a week and then you do a month and then you do a year. So your question was, should this be romanticized? Um, I think um, um, fiction allows us to understand our predicaments of course, this is the old fact and documentary um, podcast that you have, um, and I'm arguing for fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, f fiction allows you uh, far more space um, to address very many issues. And in that regard, I, would, I wouldn't mind pain being romanticized. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's a solution in a sense. Since the pain is going to come anyways, if you put yourself in certain situations. Yes. Um, can you sum up your current status? You, you uh, are now living in exile, essentially, uh, in London. Well, yeah, I'm living in exile in London. I'm having to live in exile in London. And you wouldn't want to, no one would want to actually uh, live in exile like this. I mean, I want to get back home. Um, I want to live in my house. I want to live with my people. Uh, and Britain um, has been very kind to me um, in in providing me with a safe haven. Uh, uh, and I will uh, continue to live in London or in England um, until we find a more conducive environment in the Maldives. In the Maldives right now, as I understand it, there's still a jail sentence hanging over your head if you went back there. Yeah, yeah, there is. And if I go back, I'll, I'll go straight to jail. But you have to take risks. If I have to go, I'll go. Um, and even if that takes me to jail. But I hope that 
the government understands the situation and understands uh, that you cannot go on and on by always suppressing dissent um, and arresting all your political opposition. That's not going to give you uh, the development that that you want. So uh, I'm trying to talk to the government. Um, we've, um, um, the United Nations um, and the Commonwealth and the European Union um, in many instances have tried to facilitate dialogue, but it hasn't so far succeeded. It hasn't succeeded because the international community has not built a, a good enough leverage to get the government to sit down for a conversation. And so I'm hopeful that with the new uh, US administration coming into government, uh, that they will see uh, that they have to build a more forceful leverage that would bring um, President Yamin um, to the table. Uh, you're, you may be the only person at the Sundance Film Festival talking about the new administration and using the word hope in, uh, in, in the same sentence. A lot of people have a lot of fears about the new American administration, climate change, the subject of climate change being uh, high among them uh, in that President Trump has made a, a lot of statements in denial of climate change. And, and, and I wonder what your perspective is on that. Uh, exactly. Uh, you know, many politicians before they come to government, they have views of themselves, their own ideas. But when they come, when they start running an administration, they would soon realize that you cannot deny facts. You cannot run away from climate change. Uh, I'm hopeful, and I believe uh, that you cannot reverse the climate change work. It wasn't done by President Obama or any one single person. It was done by the people of the world. It was done by the people of the United States and, and people all over the world uh, who pushed for an agreement in France finally and got an agreement. Um, I can't see the U.S. renegating from that. Um, I don't think that's possible. And, and especially, especially when the new economics is in our favor. In President Al Gore's um, video, uh, documentary, um, there was one moment when the Indian minister uh, was arguing that uh, the West has had 150 years of carbon emission and has become rich through that. And now when the, the developing world wants to do the same thing, we're asking them to stop. So there's this assumption that carbon emission is equal to development. Um, I don't think this is true. I think the new technology is far more efficient and uh, developing countries can find a low carbon development strategy. And also the argument that the West has done this for 150 years, so the West has brought us to the brink and therefore now the developing countries must have the right to push us over, off the cliff. This is, it doesn't hold water. Uh, and I think we will come to very soon understand, if you cannot embrace the new technology, how can you be the leaders of the future? You can't still be running around with an internal combustion engine. Uh, this is Victorian technology. Uh, we, we have all the new technology. And it's madness to think that that is going to lead you, for a, lead you to a better life. It's not.
it's not it's unsustainable and and, and it is also financially and economically unfeasible i think the new renewable technology is far more efficient here in america there's a lot of people who are gearing up to to make their voices heard against an administration that that they fear isn't listening uh, to them you talk about uh, the people being the the main actors in in changing things. I'd love to hear your advice to to people who who want to make that change and see a power structure that's against them. Well, I was listening to um, President Trump yesterday, and he was making the same point that it's the people. The people can do it. Uh, you might fail um, once. You might fail ten times, but you cannot give up. You must pick yourself up and then keep moving. And I think um, people must choose peaceful political activity and demonstrations and dissent must have its place in our society. If we can't do that, uh, uh, we are, of course, going in completely the wrong direction. And it's very beautiful today. Lots of people all around the world um, are protesting in line with their own beliefs. And I would assume, and I, I would, I would of course honestly think, uh, the United States can digest that, uh, and and they can find an equilibrium among themselves uh, that would bring out sustainable policies, and and I think it will happen. I want to thank President Mohammed Nasheed for speaking to me. Director John Shank's film, The Island President, is available to watch on Amazon and iTunes. Before we go, I want to take note of the Academy Award nominations that came out this week. In the documentary feature category, five films were nominated, and all five directors have previously appeared on Pure Nonfiction. You can search our archives to hear Ava DuVernay of 13th. Because I need people to be on the hook for this. Because at this point, after you learn what you learn in 13th, you know, in this case, silence is consent. Gianfranco Rosi of Fire at Sea. And the first 20 days I spent it basically interacting with the whole crew, with mm. the captain, and somehow to be sure that the moment I was taking out the camera, I was somehow welcome and trusted. Raul Peck of I Am Not Your Negro. I felt like I grew grew up with Baldwin, and, and when I was in my 20s, uh, I realized that I was saying a lot of things that were, in fact, Baldwin's. Roger Ross Williams of Life Animated. My goal was for Owen to connect to the audience, and that slowly over the course of the movie, you will get deeper and deeper into Owen's head, so that by the end, when you're in the sidekick story, you're in Owen's world. And Ezra Edelman of OJ Made in America. If you believe the caricature of Mark Furman, a guy who supposedly had a copy of Mein Kampf on his mantelpiece during the trial, you know, you're like, well, man, a black Jew, I must be his worst enemy. In the documentary short category, I want to give a special mention to the film Joe's Violin. Its director, Kahani Cooperman, was our guest on the very first episode of Pure Nonfiction. I drove from my liberal New Jersey suburb in my Prius, listening to NPR, because I'm a cliche. And <laughs> I kept hearing, I heard a, a promo a few days in a row for an instrument drive 
that WQXR was going to be having. And it was, you know, donate your instruments and all the instruments we collect are going to go to New York City school kids. Like Joseph Feingold, a 91-year-old Holocaust survivor from the Upper West Side. And I just thought, huh, I wonder what the story of that violin is. It was a violin. I, I bet it has a story. You can watch Joe's Violin for free. Go to newyorker.com and search for Joe's Violin. The producer happens to be my wife, Raphael Nehausen. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Moto, social media master, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. If you're in New York, you'll find me most Tuesday nights at the IFC Center for our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.